I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. DEI, or Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, has been a corporate buzzword for the past decade or so. The idea is to ensure, to ensure that all people have equal opportunities in the workplace. According to a new report from the Metro Human Relations Commission, our city government has a lot of work to do in this area. Leadership positions are still held mostly by white men, and there are ongoing gender and racial pay gaps. Later this hour, we'll talk with the author of the report and local DEI experts about how we got here and how the local government can better represent the people of our city. But first, results are in for the English portion of the TCAP test. For third graders, this single score can determine whether they can advance to the fourth grade or if they'll need to get additional tutoring or summer schooling. This approach has been controversial for months, and state lawmakers did debate making changes, but now that the scores are in, many parents and educators are learning just how impactful the retention law will be. Here with the latest is children's reporter for the Tennessean, Rachel Wegner. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, Rachel, this third grade retention law has been looming for months. The intent is to make sure the Tennessee students are proficient in reading. But remind us of the basics. They don't if they don't score well enough. What will summer school look like for these kids? Right. So there are definitely a few options for these kids. Um, if they scored below or approaching proficiency, they can enroll in summer school. Uh, the kids that scored as approaching proficiency can just do summer school. Um, they have to meet a 90% reten- uh, attendance rate, and then they also have to bump their score up uh, on the retest at the end of the summer by five percentage points. Okay. Uh, but the kids that scored below uh, would need to do summer school, 90% attendance, and then they also need a tutor for the entirety of fourth grade, which is provided by the state. All right. Now, the concern has been the possibility that many thousands of kids could be held back or that they'll have to go through those extra steps you just mentioned. Now, now we're seeing the numbers and they are really staggering, to tell you the truth. Tell us about the statistics and what they mean. Yeah. So the big number that's been floating around the last few days is 60 percent of Tennessee third graders did not make that threshold. They mm-hmm. scored at below or approaching proficiency. Um, But there's a lot to unpack. Um, That does not include children that are automatically exempt for something like uh, English language learners, um, kids that have been held back before, kids that have a disability that might impact their reading. Like they automatically get exempted and sent to fourth grade. Um, And then also the, the districts are the ones that are factoring those kids out. So we've started getting some of those numbers back from the districts um, piece by piece. So far around Middle Tennessee, we're seeing 35 to 40 percent is more the number of children that are facing retention Mm -hmm. that might need to take these steps. Uh, And then that number will probably drop even more as some of these kids retest, which retests started as early as Monday for some districts. Now, you know, the number of students who are not considered proficient is high, but you've noted that this statistic has even been worse in prior years, what are the districts saying about the progress that has been made? Yeah, so specifically, uh, the state education department pointed to the fact that last year this number was 65%. So we've mm. gained some proficient readers. Um, the districts also have noted some progress in similar areas. And then also the the statewide numbers reflected more, more kids than previously uh, in the 
last few years that are scoring in the higher categories, like the exceeding expectations categories, got a bump. So there are some some good numbers wrapped into that big 60% um, that everyone is focused on. Okay. So what are you hearing from superintendents, superintendents across Middle Tennessee? Yeah. So by and large, a lot of the districts have spoken against this law um, hinging solely on the TCAP English language arts score. Uh, with a standardized test, you know, some kids might be stressed out by the test. They're eight or nine years old at this point. Uh, they might uh, have some sort of hardship facing them leading up to the test. They might just struggle taking tests. Uh, so the the advocates I've heard and the parents have said, you know, we need to add more measures to, to assess their reading. Can you share an example of a reaction you've heard from the parent of a third grader? Yeah. Got lots of them in my DMs right now. <laughs> Keep bet. sending me messages. Okay. Um, <laughs> several have said, you know, my kid gets straight A's or B's, but they are scoring is not proficient because they struggle with the test. Or one one kid I've written about, he's dyslexic, um, but his parents decided not to put him into special education and just to get outside tutoring. So technically he doesn't qualify for that carve-out because it's not, like, documented in the way that the state has required it. Mm. So when he sits down to take a standardized test, even though he can read and he gets straight A's, it's not going to work out very well, right? So... That parent followed up with me and said, yeah, he scored his approaching proficiency, so now we're trying to figure out if we're going to do school, tutoring, what are we going to do for him? So they're they're appealing, they're trying to decide, you know, what they'll do. You know, we're seeing that there's been additional stress for families because of the uncertainty about what which exact day the scores would come out and how they'd be informed. What can you say about the rollout of all of this information? Yeah, so the state... Department of Education had promised that the raw scores, just the English language arts score for these third graders would come out Friday. And it did. Uh, but I think the districts told me that it came a little later than they thought. So it came around 3.30. So most of the kids have gone home at that point. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to send a letter home in a backpack, that's not going to happen. And I know that there's districts that worked through the weekend to notify parents and to try to get the ball rolling because the retesting window opened Monday and for a lot of districts they're finishing school this week so they're they're trying to get this timeline but technically yes everything has um, happened in the the timeline that was set up okay now I understand you've been checking in with the state's Department of Education about students who are deciding to take a retest what's the latest so as of 4 p.m. yesterday they said around 17,000 students retested Uh, And that number will continue to grow because the retesting technically can go through June 5th. It just depends on the district and the school. Uh, So 17,000 is roughly 40% of the children that qualified to retest that have taken it. Okay. Um, And they say that the results should turn around within 48 hours. So hopefully that big 60% number will keep going down, right, as we get these retests. I know one district said a bunch of the kids scored within a few points of proficiency. So hopefully they will be able to up their scores and bypass needing to take any extra steps and go on to fourth grade. I mean, just talking about this with you is stressful to me. Now, you know, tell me, the families can appeal this, right? Yeah, so there are a few uh, options for appeals. Um, the children have scored on a spring reading screener, which districts administer um, early in the year. They're in the 40th percentile or higher, they can appeal. Also, if children have faced some sort of hardship leading up to the actual TCAP test, um, like a catastrophic event, sometimes like natural disasters, right, things like that, um, that could be grounds for appeal. Uh, technically, the appeal window opens up on May 30. 
Um, and the parents should have, like, within 14 days of getting notified that their kid is at risk of being held back, they can file the appeal. There was some confusion because the form was technically live. And then the State Department uh, of Education took it down and said it's going to reopen on May 30. But the people that did submit ahead of that, they said, don't worry, you're in the queue. We're just not officially opening the window until May 30 through June 30. All right. So as we look forward and this goes on, what will you be digging into? Oh, my goodness. A hundred things at once, right? Uh (laughs) I think the next big number is just seeing how the retesting pans out, um, what the 60 percent number goes down to after that. I know it'll take some time for that data to flow back to the state. So we're tracking with parents and districts, you know, one on one. And then also looking for um, the state's more traditional releases of TCAP testing data um, for the state and district level throughout the summer, which usually comes in a couple of parts. Okay, And I'm sure parents will continue to fill up your DMs. I'm happy for it. I'd love to hear from you. Rachel Wegner is the children's reporter for The Tennessean. You can find the link to her article in this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Rachel, thanks for being on the show, and thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine a new study that shows a lack of diversity in our metro government's leadership positions. Join the conversation by tweeting us at thisisnashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. In 2015, the Metro Human Relations Commission analyzed the demographic makeup of 50 Metro Nashville departments and released the first Inclusivics report. The report exposed some real shortcomings in diversity within Metro's 10,000-person workforce. Just this month, the commission released the latest version of the report, which found that eight years later, challenges remain. The report showed entrenched racial and gender disparities in Metro government, especially at the leadership level. To get more of what the report found and how the analysis was done, I'd like to introduce my first guest. Ashley Batchelder is the author of the report. Ashley, welcome to Nash. This is Nashville. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You know, this seems like a really, really big data project. So tell us, how was Inclusivics put together? Yeah, so I can describe sort of, like you said, this big data project, what's in it. So overall, this is an analysis of the demographics and the salaries of about 10,000 employees across the 51 departments that we have that carry out our work of of the city. Um, And we had uh, a few basic questions that we wanted to answer with this. So, you know, first and foremost, who are the people that make up our workforce and how representative of the, are they of the city at large? And second question, do we see relative parity and equity with regard to salaries across demographics? And what kind of differences do we see in these different departments? So 51 departments, we know that um, the work that happens in these departments 
really varies a lot when we think about what we do as as a city. Um, and I want to say this does not include MNPS, um, which we're going to do as a standalone report since that's such a big system of, in itself. So we looked at this data over eight years from 2015 to 2022. So a lot of data over that time during a time when our city has also gone through tremendous changes mm-hmm. as a city itself as well. And so we looked at um, factors <laughs> like race, gender, age of employees, the counties where people live, and we looked at these and other factors within departments and across departments. Um, and I can jump into some of the main uh, takeaways here. Or, yeah, I do want to ask you about some of the key findings that we mm-hmm. should be really be paying attention to. Yeah, so there's a lot in this report. Okay. Um, you know, it's almost 100 pages of data that we've really think we've done a good job of making it easy to pick it up and like look at things that are interesting for a number of different reasons. But what I want to pull out today is um, first about the demographics of the workforce as a whole. So we see um, a growth in the number of our black or African-American employees over this eight years that is really pretty on par with the black population in Nashville. However, what we don't see is a growth in our Latinx or Hispanic workforce. So Today, in 2022, only about 3% of our workforce identifies as Latinx or Hispanic. So we know that that just does not even come close to keeping up with uh, the growth that we see in the city. Um, I'm going to jump into wages and salaries because I think that's what a lot of people are are often... Let me ask you this yeah. real quick. You know, because there we have a growing number of Latin community members here Mm -hmm. moving to Nashville. Did you all find any specific reasons for this lack of representation? Well, so all I can really say is that this is looking at secondary data. So I'll say this comes from payroll data. So this is who is Metro paying every other week on those paychecks, right? So we, we can't really speculate why is something this way. We can only describe what we see. So we definitely have a lot of questions um, about why are the things the way that they are. But we know that in order to do that, we need to probably talk to people as well. We need to have more conversations with employees, um, current employees, past employees, people who have tried to get into Metro as, um, you know, through the application process. Um, so all we can do with this is really just describe mm-hmm. who are our workers right now. Okay. Okay. Now you were talking about pay disparities. Tell mm-hmm. us more about that. Yeah. So I want to highlight um, wage gaps by race and by gender. So when we look at salaries across these eight years, we see that white employees on average are making about $10,000 more a year than black employees and then Hispanic employees. And this is consistent over time. So year after year over these eight years, white employees are coming in at the top of average salaries. So in order to look at that a little bit more closely, um, what I did was look at $10,000 salary increments. So 30000 to 40000 40000 to 50000 all the way up to the top. And so this really allows us to see what races are over or underrepresented at both ends of the pay scale, at the top and the bottom of the pay scale. And what we see is that black employees are way, way overrepresented in the three lowest salary levels from 30000 to $60,000 annually. Mm. And then you see black workers underrepresented in those salary levels between 60000 all the way up to $125,000. But $125,000 or higher is what I identified as the top salary level. 
And we see an increase in the percentage of black workers at that top level. It's not on par with um, what I would say would be fully representative of the workforce as a whole. But you see it's much closer than the tiers leading up to that. So what one could imply is that there's been some intention of ensuring racial diversity among the top paid employees. Mm -hmm. But it's only at that top level, right? It's not at the steps leading up to it. And when we look at gender, we see really the same um, pattern. So we see a consistent gender pay gap over over the eight years. Um, that pay gap is just under $6,000. We see male employees on average earning about $6,000 more a year than female employees. However, again, when we break it down by the $10,000 intervals, we see females concentrated in the bottom two tiers. Um, and then when we look at the very highest level, again, $125,000 or more per year, we see about equal parity between males and females. And so there's, you know, I might imply to say that there's some intentionality about those people at the very top um, being more diverse. But what does that say about DEI on a on a sort of mm-hmm. systemically when it's not leading up to there. It's only at the top level. So I always really think it's important to be looking at who's at the bottom when we look at who's on the top as well when it comes to pay. Okay, thank you for sharing that. I'd, I'd like to introduce my next guests now. Elisa Franklin is a retired 9-11 dispatcher who worked for Metro for more than 30 years. And Mel Fowler-Green is a former Metro Human Relations Commission director. A note for listeners, Mel is currently sitting on the board of directors for Nashville Public Radio. Elisa, Mel, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, Elisa, as you hear, you know, Ashley gives some details about the report. I'd like to hear how that compares to your experience working for Metro government. Did she say anything that stands out to you? Um, Definitely. Um, I think with this study, as I was looking through it, a lot of it, the higher paid black employees are usually the elected, the ones that were elected by the public, you find. So the growth is there, yes, but like you said, at the bottom it doesn't really seem to happen. And that's kind of the way it was in my department. Um, constantly fighting for wage increases was something that I I did numerous occasions speaking with the, the council because at the start it was very low. Now, I understand you served as the chief steward for the local chapter of the Service Employees International Union or SEIU. What what was your experience like working with Metro Council and city leadership? It's been tough. Mm. Um, many phone calls, many public speaking at the council meetings, and trying to express the importance of higher wages in our department in particular because of everything that happens and everything that we go through as a 911 dispatcher call taker. Um, We consolidated back in, I think it was 2000. So that put more on us because we're now taking the medical calls, which is not what a lot of us signed up for. So talking to the council was something that we had to get out of their heads that we're not secretaries. Mm -hmm. We're actually painting the scene for the officers to get there, the fire department to get there and be safe. How did they respond? Not too well at first. 
um, I think by relaying stories and letting them hear the actual things that we do kind of opened some more eyes to where we were able to get our own pay scale and we were not clumped in with the the other departments. We were actually specialized at that point. And then from there, I also fought for 17 years to try to get us in the public safety pension, which was a fight that went on closed ears until 2020. Mm. Now, Mel, you were there when Metro began analyzing the demographic data of this workforce. Yes. Take me back to 2015, that first year when Mm. people saw the breakdowns for the first time. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to start a little earlier than that Mm -hmm. to just talk a little tiny bit about the impetus to even do this um, because I think it speaks to like why it's important. Um, So, and in disclosure, I was not the director um, in 2014 um, when the commission really started thinking about it. But, you know, this idea or these questions about, you know, what do the demographics of Metro actually look like came after the um, fatal police shooting of Michael Brown um, in Ferguson, Missouri, um, and the protests and the um, civil unrest there. Um, Following that, there was sort of this national conversation about the fact that the local government in Ferguson, Missouri, demographically just did not um, reflect the people that they were serving. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this led the Metro Human Relations Commission to ask the question, well, what do we look like? What does Metro look like? And so that was, um, you know, a lot of the original impetus. Um, And now to directly to your question, what the reception was, well, I can say that it was um, definitely mixed um, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, the audience and what it meant for them. Um, I think that, you know, there were a lot of Metro employees who were thrilled to see that somebody was actually looking at this and raising these concerns. Um, I think that there were a, a, some electeds who were very um, excited to to see this work done. Um, there was also a little resistance, um, you know, within um, metro government. Um, when you, you say resistance, what do you mean? Well, <clears throat> you know, in, in all honesty, the um, the report was being made public near the end of Carl Dean's mayoral administration. Um, And, you know, we all know that he wanted to go on, um, as he did, to to run for governor. Um, And so I think that his administration was um, concerned that the 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 numbers reflected in the initial report would reflect poorly on, you know, his administration. Um, I think that that was echoed by um, the, you know, the HR department. Um, there was a little struggle, quite honestly, in getting the the data initially um, to even 
really be able to do this kind of analysis. Um, so yeah, there were some there there were some challenging days <clears throat> around um, the the release of that report. Mm. Um, but I think overall, I think it ref- I think it reflected really well on Nashville. In fact, um, there was a national magazine called uh, Government Technology that did a whole showcase of the report, and then you know we had worked with Code for Nashville to build um, an online platform that then like used the data dynamically over time. And so, you know, we got some, Nashville got a little bit of national acclaim for using data in this way. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the findings from the new Inclusivics report with Ashley Batchelder, Alisa Franklin and Mel Fowler Green. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. You know, in some ways, the the data shows that there hasn't been a lot of change in terms of diversifying city leadership, and the wage gap between genders hasn't really closed in the past eight years. Mel, what do you think some of those barriers are? Well, and I don't want this to sound like a cop out, but I, I I tend to be a realist, and so I, I do know that there are forces at play that even the best intentioned metro diversity plan is going to have a hard time getting over. Right? Um, just the value of um, work by women generally in our culture, um, and you know systemic racism. Um, you know, throughout our educational system um, and in our workplaces, I think that those certainly put a great deal of pressure, right, on, you know, where, like where those numbers land. Um, but, you know, I think that quite honestly, Metro is a little bit new to the DEI game, mm. Right. Like 2015, when we did this report, Metro did not have a diversity plan. Full stop. Didn't have one. So to, so it was unsurprising that the numbers were what they were in 2015. Now, you know, eight years later, um, I think it's, again, not a cop out, just being a realist here. I think that it's it's a little hard for a local government to move the numbers quickly, um, you know, given um, sort of low turnover mm-hmm. in a lot of metro positions, right? They offer a pension. People are more likely to stay longer in those jobs, Um so I think that you know there is a, there are challenges, but you're right. There are there are ways that um, they could improve. Now, Elisa, let me ask you: What did you observe while working for Metro in terms of recruiting and retaining employees, and really honestly treating them equitably? Retention in my particular department is hard because the work is hard, but I did notice that some of the recruitment procedures changed to try to open it up, maybe to be a little more fair and give people a better opportunity to work in our department. Um, 
the the demographics changed. That they went for the high school graduates um, that were unsure of what they wanted to do, but hey, this can be a career. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed that change over the years because constantly we were understaffed. So for years, what was going on was not working. So it was, I guess, around 2015 where things slowly started to change. So I could notice a difference because there were more applicants and there were more people making it through the recruitment process than it was before. You know, it seems like every week on this show, someone talks about the rising housing costs of Davidson County. Probably twice a week, I think, uh, to be honest. You know, this this report shows that even some of the higher paid city employees are moving outside of the county. Ashley, tell me, what type of impact does that have? Yeah, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad you asked this question. And so um, just real quick, what the report shows us is that. Year after year, more employees are living outside of the county. And again, I can describe what the data is saying, um, and that's really that's really what I'll do. So um, listeners might be surprised. I was surprised um, to see that it's about 53% of our employees live in Davidson County, and that's down from 60% six years ago. Mm. And so... What I did was break this down by race and by salary as well. And across race, across salary levels, we're losing we're losing people year after year. We're losing every demographic of employees to other counties. Um, but what's most interesting is because we know housing costs are going up. It's being harder and harder to live here if you are making lower or even, you know, median wages. Um, but the highest salary level, those making $100,000 or more, had the really the most drastic change in residency loss or people moving outside of the county. So it's down from 2017, where it was 70% of those employees at the highest pay living in the county, down to 50% this year. And so that really made us pause, and we think it gives us a lot to think about, just that our highest paid employees, um, one might assume they have greater executive powers, greater regulatory powers, really have control over a lot of those major decisions in our city. Yet more and more of the folks um, in those positions are not living directly in our city, in our communities. And so um, that's something that we're, we're talking to people about that we're really highlighting um, in this and just saying, you know, what does that make? What does that make you think? I see people here nodding their heads. Right. Mm -hmm. Um Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, some people may not think of the city as a really desirable employer, but Elisa, you and some of your family members worked for the city for decades. What do you want people to know about working? What it's like to work for the metro government? Um, it It's the retirement opportunities that that come and the stability of it. If you think about the pandemic, most of metro employees were still going to work where these other places were shut down and people had no no other options, I didn't miss a day. Mm. And most people within Metro didn't miss a day. So with the world being as topsy-turvy as it is right now, I think it's the, the longevity that you can accomplish by being here. Is the pay the best? Not really. It could be better with a city this size and the way that we're growing. And I think that's something this study is really going to bring the attention to some people because that's where they could definitely make improvements and allow for more longevity. 
you know, Mel, we're going to elect a new mayor later this summer. What do you want the candidates to know about ensuring that our metro government has a diverse workforce? So one thing that I definitely learned in my time working as the director at the commission is the the real policy power that mayors have in this city. Um, and I got to work under a lot of mayors, <laughs> right? Mm. I, I did um, my service with Metro, you know, from Carl Dean to, to, to Mayor Cooper. Like there was a, a lot of change. <clears throat> but mayors have a lot of power to set policy and um, set expectations and to make the budget and so there's a lot of power for them to influence um, a, a diversity plan with expectations set in departments by department heads, you know, holding department heads, you know, accountable, reasonably accountable for um, answering to a diversity plan or goals um, and so I, I would like to hear from mayors or they can't, I'd like to hear from the candidates, you know, what, what their plan is for that. Um, you know, looking at these numbers, what, what's their plan? Um, in fact, you know, we did uh, inclusivics for MNPS, I think in 2017, and that report was used during the process of hiring a school director, right? It became part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would like to see this report become part of the conversation in the mayoral race. Well, here this, at This Is Nashville, we plan to have some mayoral forums and talk to them. So perhaps we can ask that question for you. Mel Fowler-Green is an employment attorney who was the former Metro Human Relations Commission director. She was joined by Elisa Franklin, a retired 911 dispatcher with the Department of Emergency Communications. Thank you both for being on here. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for having us. Ashley Batchelder will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk about what DEI lessons we can learn from other major Nashville organizations and experts. And what do you think the city should do to better diversify its workforce? Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been discussing the lack of diversity in the Metro government's workforce, especially at the leadership level. Our city employs nearly 10,000 people, and that's not even including Metro schools. But the numbers don't accurately reflect the people who live in Nashville. How can our city government improve the effectiveness of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? Can other local organizations help serve as models? My next guests can help give us some guidance. Jackie Agbari is the founder of Worthington Advisory, which works with companies 
on their workforces and was formerly with the Metro Nashville's Career Advancement Center. And Nikki Smith-Bartley is an attorney at Asurian, where she was formerly Chief Diversity and Talent Officer. Jackie, Nikki, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Excited to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you both. Now, Jackie, you were with the city when the first Inclusivics report came out. As you look back at the initial report and learn what the current findings are, what comes to mind? Not enough change. It's just that simple. Um, it's not a problem when you uh, identify through data analytics that uh, there's an opportunity, a challenge exists. But when you uh, look at the data and it's still, um, you know, years later, not only a challenge, but uh, nothing has systematically improved or very much different. That's that's what we're looking at now. So in your former role with the city, you worked with employers to recruit and hire candidates. Tell me, what level of commitment did you see the city make to equity and inclusion? Well, I will say I was there almost 20 years. So with varying uh, administrations, there were varying levels of commitment and leadership matters. So I will say that that's uh, the answer to that question and the accuracy would depend on you know, a lot of factors, not the least of which uh, leadership and also the climate of the community uh, at that time. Uh, as, as we know, things have changed since the pandemic. We've had a number of opportunities to uh, address, reflect, and redesign uh, after the Great Resignation, uh, which is was very different uh, over a number of administrations. So uh, I hate to say it depends, but it absolutely does. Mm, I understand. Now, you know, I'm curious as to how a business, or in this case, departments within a city government, can use best practices to increase diversity within their workforce. Now, Nikki, you have experience creating, basically from scratch, a DEI approach at your company. What are ways to tackle this problem? Yeah, um, I think, you know, just piggybacking on what Jackie was saying in terms of not enough change, I think it's just a... Uh, a reality check, really, um, a reality a reality check about the fact that there is systemic and institutionalized discrimination, racism at the fabric of our nation, and that organizations are just a cross section of that. And so, what that means is that we're struggling with, you know, affordable housing and inequitable health care and education, um, gaps in economic wealth and political power. And corporate America isn't insulated from that. And so just understanding that any change in diversity, equity and inclusion within corporate America is going to be at a slow pace because of what we're facing externally as well, because that is part of your organization internally. So how do you combat that? Because, you know, DEI can be a very divisive topic. I think um, at the core is just having that leadership support at the very top of your organization. And that's not just someone who gets on the mic to say that DEI is important, but truly understanding and valuing DEI. Um, that's at the board level, that's at the executive level. And so um, 
as we know, you know, there's bias, you know, we like people like us. And so the more diversity you have on your boards and your leadership team, the more likely that diversity is to trickle down into your organization. Now, earlier in the show, I'm sorry to interrupt, but earlier in the show, you know, no, no, go ahead. Metro (laughs) Metro Human Relations Commission Director Mel Fowler Green said that, you know, even the best intention diversity effort will have a hard time landing in Metro. So how can leaders be better at taking this on? Yeah, I think the the at the foundation is creating a safe space um, to have transparent conversations about what your gaps and your challenges are. Um, knowing who you are, like knowing who you are is like looking at your data, knowing what your gaps are, and then knowing who you want to be. Like what are the changes that we are really committed to making? What is the investment that are we are really committed to making? And that will give you credibility because you're being genuine in your challenges and in your commitment. And then you can have this safe dialogue about, hey, we know what our gaps are. We know what our challenges are. Let's talk about like how we, how we make a difference, how we make change. And so creating a safe space with your employees, um, which is making sure that you have a respectful workplace. We are all different, but we've got to be respect respectful to one another and those differences. And so that's at the core. Um, educating um, your workers and yourselves on what that means to ensure that you're culturally competent. Um, in the same vein, having transparent and uncomfortable conversations sometimes so that you are exposed to people who are not like you and you gain an awareness of what it means to walk in their footsteps. Um, Also, inspecting your policies and your practices and your procedures to see where are we falling short? What is inequitable? with that coupling that with the voice of your employees, like data is only going to tell you so much, you know, what are those stories that we are not seeing within the data that will really let us know what the barriers and the challenges our employees are facing. I think those are just some of the steps that you can take. Now, Ashley Batchelder with the human Metro with Metro human relations commission is still with us again, Ashley, thank you for being here. Now we know that inclusifix doesn't offer or make specific recommendations for the city to follow. But if we were to analyze the same demographic data again, five years from now, what would you hope to see change? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. I mean, of course, I think we want to see more um, a growth in our employees who are Hispanic, Latinx, um, because we know that a lot of our departments serve um, Hispanic, Latinx communities and other diverse um, folks. And, you know, this conversation is making me think of some of the conversations that we've had um, when we've taken this around the county. We've kind of created like galleries where we're putting our findings on display. And some of the things that have come up are paying employees who are bilingual for that extra that skill, um, that skill mm-hmm. right, that that they bring to the table. Um, 
thinking about our departments that are predominantly black folks, predominantly females, are a lot of our social service agencies, um, social service, Metro Action, and our courts as well. So a lot of those very frontline roles. Um, and somebody said, you know, these are the data show the lowest paid departments and the market justifies paying us low, right? And that's where we see higher percentages, again, of of women workers, of females, of black folks, Hispanic folks. Um, so seeing um, more pay um, equity in some of those departments, um, paying people for bilingualism, um, I think are some things that we would love to see. Now, Jackie, you work with companies that really want to get serious about developing their workforce. What would you recommend to Metro leaders? So that's a great question and something that we've taken time to really analyze. If you take uh, inclusive engagement seriously, then it won't be any different than any other uh, metric measure based uh, area of your business. So if companies are looking to be serious, they have specific metrics that are designed to move that needle in that direction, not unlike anything else that's part of their mission critical goals. With that specifically, uh, we're looking at ways that um, companies and Metro could certainly do that, as it's been referenced um, with some of the others on, on the panel here, is looking at what they want to see and work your way backwards into doing so. And that has to be very specific. Um, if there's a SMART goal plan that is specific, measurable, aligned with the overall goals and objectives of the organization, and put a realistic timeline um, with basically a due date, mm. because hope is not an action plan. You have to have specific ideas of what success looks like, map that out, and then work, work your way backwards into that. So Metro um, could do this very easily as well. Um, and there have been some steps and there have been uh, opportunities that have been uh, discussed but honestly, as long as it's um, uh, loosey-goosey and talk uh, without a specific action plan, it's highly unlikely that metrics will be achieved without that. We're still waiting for a full-throated commitment from Metro government. Now, Nick, Nikki, on that, on that note, how can Metro government be a leader in DEI efforts, like in a way that will encourage or inspire businesses in the Nashville area to increase diversity for themselves? Yeah, I think um, having meaningful investments, both internally and externally, right? And so not just um, within your organization, but also out within the community. And so any policies that they can put forth that is helping with those issues that I uh, alluded to earlier in terms of housing, equitable healthcare, equitable education, economic wealth, political power, the more meaningful investments that they can put behind that, um, the more that they can be a leader and the more that they can help to really um, move that, move the needle in terms of change in that space. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm wondering what roles the voters have in this. Jackie, I said that you smiled. Tell me this. What can they signal to the many candidates that are vying to be the next mayor? Well, I would say that the voters have the final say because with anything else, um, and honestly, I also want to go back to the fact that there are many 
uh, other factors, affordable housing, as Nikki mentioned. Um, also, back to just, you know, everything that impacts uh, high quality of life in a community. So the voters can determine the priorities of the platform. The voters can determine what is going to be important. And the voters also can determine that uh, these items will be not only a part of the conversation, but a part of their decisions of who they vote for. And I would say that uh, reflecting that, as pointed out in the report, not only are there few changes, if any, relative to the Hispanic, Latinx community, but African-Americans in uh, department heads, African-Americans in decision-making positions with the authority and responsibility to truly drive change. So those are questions that the voters can currently ask the candidates and also make their voting decisions based on mm. reflecting their high priority. Mm. Now, Metro Human Services wasn't able to have a representative on the show today, but they did share several diversity initiatives uh, that they're working with the department leaders on conscious inclusion and unconscious bias, bias training. They're also working intentionally on recruiting relationships and finding in, employees in Nashville's Hispanic and Kurdish communities. So, Ashley, how do you think this latest inclusivics report is being received? Um, I think um, I think good so far. So we just um, rolled this out about three weeks ago. And so uh, process-wise, we are definitely having meetings with department heads who who want to talk with us, right? We're starting with those first. We'll be talking to the Board of Health just next week. Um, We've talked with folks in the DEI office, you know, does this match your assumptions of what you think when you look at the data, right? Um, we are, like I said, having community conversations around the county, and we're doing them in places like community centers and libraries where Metro employees are are the folks staffing those places so that we're really bringing this to um, people who are directly affected, right, where you can flip to page 76 and see that is a profile of the department that you work in. So we're really starting right now, both bottom up, talking to the workers themselves, you know, mm-hmm. ourselves, I'm a worker too, um, and then engaging the candidates, engaging department heads. So we're trying to go at both directions. Well, we'll see how this progresses. I want to thank you all for being on the show. That was Ashley, Ashley Batchelder, Director of Policy and Research for the Metro Human Relations Commission. She was joined by Jackie Akbari, founder of Worthington Advisory, and Nikki Smith-Bartley from Asurian. Again, thank you all for coming on to the show today. Really appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tony Gonzalez. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Rajel Jones, Andrea Blackman, and Robert Wilson. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>